Hey there, welcome to XR Industry Leaders with ArborXR. My name is Brad Scoggin, and I am the CEO and one of three co-founders of ArborXR. We've had the opportunity of working with thousands of companies since 2016. And we've learned a ton about what it takes for XR to be successful in your organization. And I'm Will Stackable, co-founder and CMO. This podcast is all about interviewing the leaders who are on the ground making XR happen today. True pioneers in the space, from Amazon, Walmart, and UPS, to Coke, Pfizer, and beyond to uncover the pitfalls, lessons learned, and secrets that you can use to help grow XR in your organization. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I would love to start out by just hearing a little bit about your personal journey into XR. Well, I think like a lot of folks that do what I do and have been drawn to AWS, it started when I was a kid and falling in love with the internet and with uh, sci-fi and with video games. Um, I discovered the internet when I was in fourth grade in 1994, and I became obsessed with it. And I spent most of my childhood just trying to acquire uh, the hardware and the access to be able to get onto the internet and then build websites. I was obsessed with websites. Um, and also sort of in the background had this interest in building video games, but really it was building things on the internet that was my passion. Um, so that led me to, you know, start working at a small local ISP when I was in high school. Um, and then even while I was in the military, I would still be, you know, doing small web application based projects for the different military units I was with. And then when I got out of the military, I immediately went to work as, you know, a full stack web application developer. And over the course of my career post-military, I ended up working for almost every vertical imaginable, um, uh, building anything that you could build that was sort of at a uh, commercial or enterprise grade, full stack. But as long as it had a, you know, sort of a front end component that was based on internet connectivity, you know, so that took me through um, marketing, PR, hospitality, construction, uh, energy, entertainment. Uh, so by the time, uh, you, the last role I had before AWS was working with Nike. Um, so by the time I landed with AWS, um, which is the place where you could kind of build anything because of the, you know, the number of options services, um, I ended up uh, finding a home with this team called Prototyping. And prototyping focuses on sort of taking the customers that um, have challenges that they can't really figure out based on, you know, what they've built before. And there's not a really good reference architecture before. So they need this team to come together and sort of solve the problem and build a prototype to prove it, uh, which is handy if you have a sort of a wide background across a lot of different verticals. Um, and during that time period, when I was working on the prototyping team, I ended up building a lot of prototypes that included, uh, you know, 3D components, uh, you know, VR, AR, all drawing from different hobbies I had, and even a failed startup I had for the gaming industry in the past, where I had experimented with these technologies, but never worked with them in production. Um, so I ended up doing all of these different things. And I found out from other resources within spatial computing in AWS, oh, I was actually building digital twins and, you know, all these sort of known use cases, but just by, you know, sort of trying to work backwards from the problem. And that led to me building this uh, 
solution called VAMS, which is sort of a reference architecture for a um, enterprise spatial data lake. Uh, and then by the time that happened, it was just apparent that 90% of my time was focused on uh, on XR in general. So I might as well make it official. So a few months ago, I, um, I left uh, the prototyping team and came over to spatial computing um, to help work with our customer to sort of um, figure out those problems, but from a very spatial, you know, point of view. Yeah, that's very cool. I love to hear the, you know, the, the deep origin. I think it's funny. I, as you're saying that, I think I was in fourth grade when I first encountered the internet and I had a buddy who was, you know, they had the first computer in town. I think it was an IMAX. I mean, it wasn't the first computer, but the one of the first ones with the internet, I grew up in a small town and I remember I had no clue what it was. But I would see like websites when I'm watching like an NFL game and I'd like remember, okay, giants.com. I'm gonna go type that in and see what happens. Um, so that's a, that's a really cool origin story. Uh, so we were doing a little research on you uh, ahead of this call and we found a really cool article uh, that you wrote in 2014. So this may catch you off guard a little bit, but I want to ask you about it because so the, the title of this article was uh, the 50 most important things I've learned at 30. So I guess you, it was, you just turned 30. And one of them in particular really resonated with both Will and I. So I'm going to read it. And then here's, here's the question is, do you think it's still true today? And could you talk a little bit about it? So just think about that as I'm reading this. But uh, let's see, it says, uh, I've come to realize that I have a deep and unexplainable affection for people, every single one of you, that every one of you have something about you that's worth knowing and understanding, that there is value, uh, that there is a value uh, in, in a meaningful relationship with all of you. And why I forget this on a daily basis, I'll never know. And I think all of it, but especially that last part, it just hit like, ah, that, that's, that's good. So yeah, curious. Yeah. Does that still, is it still true for you today? Uh, and talk about it a little bit. Oh yeah. I think so. I think that's true today. Actually, I'm, I'm glad I heard that because that's a good reminder. Um, because I, I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that, um, you know, we live in a period of time where empathy is really important, right? Um, it's very important to uh, sort of take a step back and and remember, I guess, the values that we all knew that we had, you know, from the beginning, um, and to sort of pivot it back to the technology standpoint. Um, you know, one of the reasons I I liked work was attracted to AWS so much was the, this idea of customer obsession, and customer obsession is really a people obsession because your customers are not necessarily the you know the huge entity that they work for, but the individuals you work with, um, and uh, you know so throughout my process you know doing what I do with the folks at AWS and and our customers you get a chance to exercise that empathy, putting yourself in their shoes and understanding them like every day. Uh, but sometimes, I don't know, you might forget that when you go home, you could do that with just everybody. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, no, thanks for reminding me of that. It's such a core of building great products is just being curious about people and and asking good questions and I think when I when I saw that, I thought, man, that's that's a powerful reminder for me that uh, we we do that the same. You know, we, we're in a product company, so every day we're we're asking questions about what are, what do our customers need and how can we what could we build for them that would help solve this problem. And then some days you get home and you forget to do that with your family, and so that's fun. 
We maybe you maybe you can write you can write fifty things uh, when you turn forty. We we we'd read another one of those. Well, I don't know. I'm never going to turn forty, so I'm going to be thirty nine forever. <laughs> the best year. What you mentioned before, the putting yourself in people's shoes, um, the uh, removing friction. I think is you have this idea of working backwards or helping people or putting yourself in the user's shoes. Um, but when you're trying to figure out how to come up with new uh, new ways or let – me, let me find a different way to phrase that. When you're trying to figure out – when you have this set of tools or data or information or capabilities and you're trying to figure out, okay, well, how can I use these, which – We've been taught as sort of a backwards way to do it. You start from the problem and work backwards. But now it's sort of like we have all these tools. What are we going to do with them? Um, you know, going around and looking for where the friction is is probably the best way to to realize how to leverage what you already have um, to solve problems. And once again, if you want to understand where friction is, you got to understand. You got to empathize and put yourself in the shoes of the people that are experiencing the friction. And it could be things that are super innocuous and annoying, or it could be something that they would have never thought of themselves. But, you know, you can imagine it from the perspective of this new set of tools you have and think of reducing frictions that they would have never thought could have been reduced. Right. So I don't know. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. And we, I mean, we talk a lot about removing friction and if, even in this vein, I mean, it's, for us, we started a business prior to this six years ago, and out of ignorance and out of necessity, we stayed really close to the customer because we didn't know what else to do. And so it was, well, if we can become an expert in the problem, then hopefully we can be successful. And it worked really, really well. And what's interesting is, um, you know, e even back to to your your article, we had just a little bit of success during that season in that company and we kind of drifted back from the customer and it was just it was immediately evident and i think it's interesting how quickly that can happen if you aren't mindful to stay close to the problem stay close to the customer but i mean for us as a company when we look at xr and we look at the impact it can have on the world i mean i think the word or the phrase removing friction like that encapsulate that that's for us it feels like that's kind of our our core mandate is helping to remove the friction of taking xr to scale so I'm curious, you know, in your your new role, um, and I mean, all of your roles have sound sound very very interesting. Uh, prototyping whatever customer needs that sounds pretty exciting. But with XR specifically, I mean, maybe, maybe talk about that. Like, what what types of friction are you removing that you can talk about publicly, or or maybe um, give some examples? Um, I can speak generally, uh, uh, but I'm gonna first jump around to some specific examples. Um, there is a uh, project that I had the pleasure of working with several folks from Bristol Myers Bristol -Myer Squibb on uh, about a year and a half ago. It's uh, You can check it out. It's featured in the uh, AWS Innovation Ambassadors podcast. Uh, but basically, um, the one of their technical leaders had this idea um, when he was actually I think observing his son play a video game. And this idea was, wow, if it was as easy for our scientists to manipulate the data that they deal with as it is for my my son to fly around this video game, then maybe it'd be a lot easier for us to do, you know, biomedical research. Um, and that turned into uh, 
the prototype, which we launched successfully, where we took these, you know, huge data sets of uh, COVID research data that would normally end up going through all of these different uh, very heavy duty processes to produce like a blot diagram in a report. Right. And instead, we were able to stream that into a fully interactive uh, 3D experience that you could also look in VR. And then instead of having to output a bunch of different angles of different 2D graphs, you could instead jump into VR or even from your browser, uh, you know, take that data and and actually pivot it and look around it. And then you could bring in different data sets and color code it. Um, So that is just like a really, I think, good example of, oh, here's something that you have in the video game industry, which is where XR gets most of its inspiration, right? That's easy. And something we have over here that we use in another enterprise use case that's hard. And can we merge the two together to make the hard thing easier? So I think that's probably an example. Yeah, that's great. And you know, another thing I think our our listeners are always really interested in because it's a lot of it's it's Fortune 500, it's Global 2000, it's 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 SMBs, um, but like what from your perspective? And I know you've been in this role, in this new role for just a bit, but it sounds like you've interacted with some of the XR stuff for a while. So from your perspective, what was the journey for AWS to kind of start taking XR seriously and and, and investing resources and time there? Well, AWS is been a platform that XR has been used for um, from the beginning. When you look at um, the different types of resources that you need to develop in XR, um, you're either looking at somewhere where you need to store your data, somewhere you need to transform your data, somewhere you need to um, uh, marshal and uh, and manage and deploy your applications, or somewhere you need to stream your applications from, right? Uh, so sort of every aspect of the journey that you would need to support an XR experience, um, yes, it can be done on-prem or just from an individual terminal, but that all translates to the cloud, you know, um, organically. What we found with our customers is that a lot of times there are different aspects of that entire journey that customers are already developing on AWS, or they have certain workloads that are on AWS on an as-needed basis, whether they needed the increased capacity, whether they needed the flexibility and the agility. So across those different dimensions, there's a lot of um, customers that are already using AWS for XR. Um, Obviously, when there's enough of a critical mass where we see enough customers asking for the same thing, it makes sense uh, for us to, you know, start to put together resources to support that directly. Uh, And that's where the WWSO, the Worldwide Specialist Organization comes in, is generally speaking, when you have these different vertical or horizontal or industry specific uh, pockets of use cases or practices that start to develop, it it, develops a need to be able to support it specifically. So um, although there's been spatial competency around AWS for for years across a lot of different projects, um, I think in the last few years, it's made a lot of sense to bring together and create a specialist team that focuses just on XR. And I think that's how we were, uh, we uh, we met you folks at Arbor XR. Uh, part of that, our team's effort has been to try to figure out the partners that are already working on AWS in XR and develop those relationships. 
And then when we go in and talk to customers, we have um, a lot of arrows in the quiver. We have a lot of different options to pull from when telling, helping them understand how they can solve their problems. It's not just, oh, well, here's a reference architecture and here's, um, uh, here's some information on how to build it yourself. It's, oh, we also have partners that can support you in this way. Um, here's a number of um, you know, implementations that are already you know, using AWS. Here's some stuff in the marketplace. Um, so it's, it's gotten to the point where it made sense to have a team that was dedicated, I guess, if that makes sense. You have an interesting role in the industry. It's almost you almost have a, a guiding role. Uh, companies are coming in wanting to put together a prototype, or they're trying to address specific issues. They're trying to scale. I'm curious, how would you just if you took a step back, ten thousand foot view, where would you assess our in terms of progress and timeline of where XR is? Let's say, and let's just say VR specifically, not AR, but in terms of where VR is, real world applications, big companies using it, kind of you know. We've, we have this 10-year period. Where, where are we now? Well, I think that if you take a look at where things are at right now, you have a lot of different companies, um, especially in the enterprise space, that have very specific subsets that are already like um, that are already taking advantage of XR to solve problems that they have right now. Um, I think the first use case that we saw become ubiquitous across industry was training. VR training was sort of uh, one of the one of the early things that we saw spread across. And others that are sort of industry specific, um, such as augmented support, the idea that you have some sort of augmented assistance for a repair or an operation that's happening on the ground, um, that's cropping up in an industry specific way. So um, I personally think it's to the point where if there's not a um, necessarily a big wide scale adoption, that wouldn't slow down the momentum of all these individual threads that are developing out of necessity. Uh, that being said, um, our goal at AWS is obviously to provide the tooling and the support to handle any eventuality, right? Whether or not this transitions into a wide scale um, interconnected metaverse as some people imagine it would be, or if it's a lot of these separate individual use cases that use the same technology, um, the, the underlying tools, the platforms that you'll need to build this stuff are all part of the service set that we we provide. So we try to support that in either scenario. I, I have maybe an ignorant question. Is, is what, what is the process uh, for a company... I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about a company that's deploying XR and, I'm, and they're using AWS. Why do they come to you for help? Uh, again, that's an ignorant question, it, but like I wouldn't even, that, that wouldn't be top of list. Let's go to my, my cloud provider. So what's that, what does that process look like for a company that comes and say, hey, I have these problems. And then you say, well, the, we can help you. A lot of times if a customer isn't, doesn't understand that there's this solution architect um, support system within AWS um, that exists. It's not like a customer service type support. It's more um, uh, to help support and understand how to use the technology in the best way possible. Um, they may not be asking for it because they don't know it's available, uh, but, a, but a typical path or how it might work is um, let's say that you're a company that's doing streaming XR as a service for 
you know, uh, maybe a game provider or something like that. So you're having trouble scaling. You can't afford it. Um, you know, it's kind of expensive uh, to run on an individual GPU. You want to optimize it. You're doing a lot in the cloud. So you go to your um, your account manager. You say, hey, I want to figure out how to optimize this. He'll pull in a solution architect. And during that conversation, um, that solution architect realizes, oh, they have a lot of questions that are specific to the spatial specialization. Um, at that point, they can put in a request for a specialist to come in, and then we'll come in and actually meet with the customer directly and understand the use case, help them solve their problem, but also introduce them to the wide range of options we have or uh, available to go beyond just what they're aware of. Uh, and oftentimes it's not just about solving the problem in the moment, but we get to learn about the customer and then go back and then come back to them with options that they might not have even know were an option. There are still people developing VR out there that aren't aware that you can really effectively stream it. You don't have to run it all in an Oculus, like small things like that. So what are some other, I'd, I'd love to dig in there. Um, when you, because you do have this unique perspective and people are coming to you with their problems. Uh, what are you seeing? What are some of the major pain points or challenges for companies that want to adopt VR for training? Let's say. I think that content authoring and content creation is a gap that we're seeing a lot of. Um, next to that, it would probably be things centered around um, operational excellence. That's where a service like, you know, what Arbor XR provides is very useful. It's, um, there's a lot of companies that are in this prototype or proof of concept phase, or maybe they have a few pilots, uh, but they don't have the full developed end-to-end um, -end systems in place that they did for their web applications or their mobile or maybe their specialized device for their industry. So there's a lot of operational excellence that needs to go into how do you manage these devices? How do you um, develop and ma manage the code? What sort of resources do you need? Uh, and that gap as well is, I think, more a mark of the transition point we're at than any individual indicator. I think that's a great point. And that kind of goes back to my question about where are we in the timeline of this technology and it developing. Uh, if we wanted to zoom on, zoom, zoom in for just a minute on content authoring and maybe just content in general, that's a question every company probably listening is asking is, should we build it ourselves? Should we use, should we use a tool? Like what, what, how do you think about when, when a company approaches you, how do you think about answering that question of what do we do for content? We try to factor in obviously every, like there's no, clear answer for each situation. It's the solution architect, it depends sort of answer. Um, but it's a matter of, it, well, there are three things you could factor in. One, um, where their financial, where they're comfortable with the financial risk. Do they want to do an initial investment now in and in sort of a slow burn? Um, would they rather you know, is it less risky to engage with contract resources? Does it make uh, less sense to manage it themselves and work with a, uh, a company that specializes in authoring content, um, a SaaS solution, some combination of three? So where it makes sense for them financially to do this investment in authoring, uh, that may end up uh, being more of an influence on what makes the most sense for them than necessarily what is the best approach from a technical standpoint, right? Because you can 
you know, hire staff that can build 3D content. Uh, you can contract. Uh, you can work with a SaaS company, or you can try to take existing resources you have and cross-train them. Uh, there's no sort of easy answer, but what's generally been the case, which is why we have this uh, APN, our partner network, um, you're included in that, and the marketplace, the idea that you know we can su help support you with, with the training and pointing in the right direction to train your staff. Um, we can bring in those partners that can fill gaps and by the time you're ready to, you know, build it all and manage it all yourself, you've not had to make a huge initial investment without really understanding how much, you know, what the long, the full cost is going to be. You've been able to slowly step up your commitment to that skill set within your organization as your needs, uh, you know, sort of dictate them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Would you, is there a trend? Are you seeing, are more companies nowadays turning towards authoring tools and doing it internally? Or do you think it's it's still a real mix? I think that, from, I mean, from what I've seen with, with the customers I work with directly, it seems to be a mix, which I think is also an indicator of where the, um, that's an indicator of where the technology is at from the, from an adoption standpoint, as you sort of pointed out earlier. Um, I think one thing that's very interesting to me is there's a huge amount of talent um, when it comes to content creation, content authoring in a very large and well-developed industry, and that's all in the games industry. Um, so what I'm very much curious about and sort of excited about is to see, um, you know, although there's a lot of technology cues and um, other points of reference that the games industry has been able to, we've been able to draw from the games, games industry and bring into XR. Um, I'm interested to see if there's more uh, of, from a people standpoint that we're going to see make the leap and start contributing to enterprise XR that have previously worked in the games industry for the last, you know, five, 10, 20 years. What advice do you have for companies that are looking uh, to start a pilot project? And I might specifically add, is there anything that you've seen that surprised you about the challenges or things that maybe most companies don't think about early on that they should think about early on? If you're going to start a pilot project, um, uh, one thing that we can provide, if any of your listeners are interested in, um, is we have a, a breakdown of the different use cases that we look at. Um, and that's a good way to uh, sort of categorize the different ways you can possibly build in XR. And uh, if you can take a look at the established use cases, such as you can look at the range of use cases, such as training, um, sales augmentation, augmented support, virtual facilities, you know, start from the standpoint of one of those use cases. And that will help you see if you take those use cases and you look at your uh, current friction points, and then where you already have some sort of enterprise uh, uh, sort of data presence, that'll probably point indicate to you which is the best place to start and experiment with a pilot. And then from there, generally speaking, if you wanna just leverage an existing footprint that you have that already provides the data or the reach that you'll need for that application, it just needs maybe a, uh, a VR app to present data that's already there, um, you can, from a relatively low um, investment standpoint, take something that you already have in the cloud or uh, data structure you already have represented 
and extend it into VR and see some value at it without having to make a major infrastructure investment or change. For instance, if you have an existing edge IoT um, infrastructure in place or a cloud IoT infrastructure, um, maybe you have an API that serves all of your cloud IoT data to some business intelligence dashboards. Um, you can use that same API to feed data into a, um, into a digital twin made with our service twin maker. And then you wouldn't have had to change any of your infrastructure, but you can still see some value off of what you already have in place. Yeah, that's very cool. What you talk about different use cases, like what, what are some, maybe speak generally, what are some of the use cases that you're most excited about that you've seen? Oh, that's some. Um, so I'm most excited about the use cases that center around VR. This is on a personal level, right? Um, Specifically, the um, interaction at a distance use cases, such as immersive co collaboration, uh, um, sort of virtual facilities. The, the idea that you could be on the other side of the planet and remotely operating a facility or walking around that facility as if you were there or um, looking at the entire cubic data history of a facility from the other side of the planet. Like all the things that involve being in a virtual environment at a distance. And that's what really gets me excited. Um, and I think that you'll find there's an equal number of people that are in the XR space that aren't terribly excited about that, but they're very excited about the um, augmented support idea, the idea that you can be walking around hands-free inside of a factory and have all of the knowledge and capabilities of all the experts on you with just a pair of glasses or maybe an earbud, right? Yeah, totally. Well well, follow up to that. I mean, what what are some use cases you've seen with with the biggest ROI? Or do you have any do you have any stats that you know you could pull out in terms of training efficacy, reducing training time, anything interesting you've seen? Feels like we're just now at the point where there's really good starting to become really good data, not just at the academic level, but in the real world. So there is a uh, there is a um, recent metaverse study from the IMF. I think it was McClinsky that put it out. Um, there's some good data in there. Uh, most of the data that I know from that study offhand is more about investment and um, the consumer acceptance of metaverse concepts rather than their impact. Uh, but I can actually do some research and see if there's data on the efficacy, like you mentioned before, and and get and follow up with you folks. Yeah, that's great. We that's when we always like to ask. Sometimes people will have a an interesting stat from their own organization, or I think at some point, you know, not that long ago, everyone was the best stats we had were studies out of you know Yale or Cambridge, or so it seems like we're now starting to see pilots where people are publishing real world use cases, which uh, real world, um, yeah, stats. When you want to quantify things like reduction in cost, or um, you know, things in, centered around that, there's there's probably data that's already available. You know, training is probably the place where you can find a lot of the, you know, the useful information. Um, when it comes to the, uh, the other use cases, like I said, I don't know offhand, but I think I should be able to do some research and find out if, if there is something that's come up, you know, in this last year since we've had a lot more adoption and see if there's anything that's, um, that's compelling. Yeah, that's, that's good. You know, I, we were at both at AES together, whenever that was, several months ago now. 
And it, to me, one of the encouraging things from that event was it felt like um, most companies were asking, not does XR work, but how to scale XR, which I think is a great question because it wasn't that long ago that <laughs> the question was, does it work? Um, I think uh, another obviously kind of hot topic is metaverse. And something you mentioned earlier, and then we had dinner that weekend and, and uh, you said a few things that I thought was really interesting that I want to actually ask you. Um, you talked about AWS being prepared for whichever scenario plays out. Is it, is it, is it this kind of all one world scenario or is it multi-worlds? And you had an interesting take that I had not heard of at the dinner. Hopefully you remember this, but you, you know, about how it's possible. It, it doesn't have to be one world, like multiple worlds can, can coexist. Maybe, would you mind sharing a little bit about that? I thought it was very interesting. Okay. Um, I just want to preface this by saying that this is more my opinion, ideating as a builder, um, rather than none of this is defined yet. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I think a lot of people are, you know, correctly trying to compare what metaverse applications and metaverse traversal would be like from the frame of reference of the two um, marketplaces that we're most familiar with. One is the internet, the World Wide Web, um, and the other is the um, the apps, you know, the app stores that we're all familiar with. Um, so you have uh, these app stores that work on different devices. There's Android, there's Apple and whatnot. Um, you also have these uh, applications that sort of act as as closed gardens. Like once you enter them, you sort of stay within them. Like Facebook's an example, and um, maybe even the Amazon, you know, app suite, the Alexa app suite, and so on and so forth. Um, so although each one of these experiences are their own contained experience, they have their own special features and characteristics, um, you can still use the World Wide Web to move around the, the internet, the public internet that's outside of these applications, these closed gardens, to move around and and jump between them. As a, as a consumer, you you go on a website, uh, you find something on Google that says, okay, click here to install the app on your iPhone and it opens up on your phone and installs it. Um, maybe you're you know, somebody in a chat room in one place or on Reddit references um, a YouTube video and it'll bring you back into the YouTube experience and that link opens up YouTube and it plays it in a certain point. Um, the way that that's structured, the way that the all the different apps and browsers are able to support that experience is because there are, um, you know, your websites have uh, meta tags at the top that provide certain context. Uh, links are formatted in, in a certain way. Um, you know, there's a, this basic web browsing experience that sort of every browser is capable of. Then there's this enhanced experience you get within these applications that go beyond that capability. And the ability to, to have that interconnectivity is all, you know, sort of governed by these like open standards or these uh, unofficial um, formatting rules that everybody follows that allows consumers to go from one website to another, from one app into another. And they're able to have one fluid, you know, browsing or exploring experience. Um, so I don't think that necessarily there's any reason why whatever the metaverse grows into, it, 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 there's anything preventing it from having that be the outcome as the similarity. Um, if you're experiencing it 
in an augmented reality standpoint where I'm walking around with augmented reality glasses, uh, or if you're in with a VR headset, um, you're moving around uh, no longer just within one app or one contained VR air experience, but you're able to move through multiple um, that are hosted by different individuals and have different capabilities, but there's still a way that you can have a, a sort of a seamless exploration or browsing experience between the two. So um, given how well we were able to solve that problem with the World Wide Web and these different closed gardens, uh, you know, in these apps situation when that transition happened, I don't see any reason why a similar solution wouldn't end up being the case when eventually there, there is the need for a, um, an interconnected metaverse type experience. So you don't think that that was sort of a unique magical moment in world history where the internet just happened to evolve as this open, um, platform. Do you think we can, it seems like now everyone's so interested in capturing whatever value they can and carving out their little space, but you feel like that there's no reason we can't see that again with, with VR and AR and the metaverse and what I do think is historically um, there there were a number of um, organizations that put forward specifications and standards and whatnot, and those typically either were very aspirational in the early days, you know, going all the way back to the original World Wide Web spec in 1989, or they were functional, meaning it was time to it came out of a need to solve a problem, um, and I don't see any indication that that's changing. Um, the uh, these standards organizations are continuing to um, to work and be widely supported. Um, there's the um, the WebXR standard uh, was just completed. I know the um, AWS um, Sumerian team uh, contributed uh, to that. Um, prior to that, there's a lot of amazing work going on with the Kronos Group. Um, so if you just look at you know how the how these specifications came out and were adopted over time, and what we're working on today. Um, like I said, my personal opinion, I don't see any indication that um, that there's any deviation from that. As as this, I mean, the open source open source is still sort of the um, the gold standard for software development, which is you know very encouraging when you want to look at. It, you know, the landscape of, of the technology. So, yeah. That's great. Well, just to lay on the plane here, uh, on a, on the sake of time, this is a question we like to ask everybody and you kind of are already going this direction, but I'm curious. So 10 years from now, looking back, what surprises us about XR and, and maybe more broadly the metaverse? I think that, uh, and it's interesting because the, um, one of my colleagues who you know, David Randall, um, he was he was speaking about this, and this is what gets in the back of my head. Um, there's a lot of focus right now on what are the immediate problems that are solvable with this new technology, as we should, because that's um, that's that means that we're you know exploring this in the right way. Um, but I think if you look beyond the immediate problems that we can solve. And imagine what a world is going to be like when you, we no longer have to have a barrier between an intent 
and availability or action. So, I mean, if we, um, like right now, we can type a word in and we can get a picture and Sable Diffusion allows that picture to come to manifest out of noise, right? Um, well, the leap from that to being able to speak a word and having something manifest in VR or to speak a word and having something manifest on a 3D printer, okay, now I'm just going to think and it's suddenly there. There's not a lot of leaps there. Same thing with access to information, same thing with changing things in our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. You know, um, switching my appointments around, uh, scheduling uh, a chiropractic appointment, whatever, right? Uh, these are all still things now that we need the assistance of technology or typing. There are barriers to them happening or access. But 10 years from now, when there are no barriers, we just exist in a state of where intention is all that needs to happen to get access to things and for things to change. I think that is going to be a very different world than we're imagining today. Yeah. Yeah, it does. That's a uh, wild world. I think it's a fun and exciting world. Um, but uh, Stephen, this has been great. We really appreciate your time today. And if, if people want to find you, is LinkedIn the best place to find you? Uh, LinkedIn. Also, um, if, you, um, if you are an AWS customer, uh, you can reach out to your account manager. And if you're interested, just request a uh, specialist request uh, for spatial computing and we can help you out. Yeah, very nice. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, and uh, talk soon. Man, I think Stephen was spot on, and it's super encouraging to see a company the size of Amazon taking XR seriously, and the emphasis that they're placing on the infrastructure side of things uh, is just so important to see the this this thing scale. I know it's something we think about every day, but that theme that you can have fantastic content and you can have the best headset in the world, but if you don't have infrastructure to pull it all together, you can't build scalable real-world deployments that actually make an impact. So it's fun to hear from Amazon. They're obviously at the center of all that. Um, great episode. If you want to hear more uh, conversations with industry leaders, check us out on arborxr.com backslash podcast. You'll find show notes, links, and full transcripts of each episode. And of course, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.